to the Genfluence Podcast. I'm your host, Jenna. Welcome to episode eight of Genfluence. Today, I'm super excited. I'm having my first guest on the podcast. Today, I have Dr. Allie McDaniel, and Allie and I are actually um, sorority sisters. We went to college together, and she is now an OBGYN in Las Vegas, and we were chatting last week um, just about some different OBGYN-related things, and Allie's like, this needs to be an episode, and I couldn't agree more, so um, bear with us. The audio is not super great. Like I said, Allie's all the way in Las Vegas, and I'm in Indiana, so we're using the Anchor app, and this is the the first time I've used it to record a call. So the episode is about an hour long, but it's definitely worth it. We cover a lot of content. So if you have to pause and come back, please do so um, and make sure that you do listen to all of it. It's it's definitely worth it. So Allie, if you want to go ahead and introduce yourself and then we'll just get right into questions. Hi, like Jenna said, I'm Allie McDaniel. I am a physician in Las Vegas. Um, I initially lived in Indiana, uh, went to USI uh, with Jenna for undergrad, went to med school at um, Indiana University, and then uh, started my residency in Cleveland and finished it in Las Vegas. And I have stayed here to um, start my practice. Wonderful. So we put out on Instagram kind of some question pods over the last maybe couple weeks and ask women to send us their questions. Um, what really started it was Allie and I had a conversation about my mom's ovarian cancer and I had some questions about fertility. And so as we were chatting, we're like, oh my gosh, we should totally do a podcast. We've got so much to cover. So um, we had some questions submitted that we want to get into. And then Allie, of course, you can just take it away where, wherever you want to start. Okay. Um, well, we'll get into the questions for sure, um, but I kind of want to describe what what I do every day at your basic um, annual OBGYN well woman exam, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of women I see in my office come in for a well woman when they have a problem. Um, and I just wanted to, um, well, well, that's great, but I also wanted to reiterate that um, we do like to see you every year. Um, some of the questions we had that were asked were, is a PAP needed yearly? and what exactly does a PAP and annual exam cover? So those are both great questions. So I'll start with what I do during the annual exam. So when a woman comes in for their annual exam, we start with a comprehensive medical history asking about um, you know, any medical problems you have, um, diabetes, high blood pressure, et cetera, what kind of surgeries you've had in the past, uh, your OB history, Um, How many pregnancies have you had? And then uh, if any, and then we go into GYN, which is a little bit, um, the history includes um, STDs, are your periods regular, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we we do the physical exam. I, I do a brief full physical, but I mostly focus on um, the reproductive areas, which is uh, my specialty. So that's what I focus on. Um, we do a breast exam um, and we'll have you. So everybody does it differently. So if your provider doesn't do it this way, um, you know, everybody does it different. Um, mm-hmm. But I usually have you raise one arm up, lay flat on the bed uh, and then raise one arm over your head because your breast tissue actually goes into your armpit a little bit. So um, and then we just do a breast exam feeling for lumps and bumps. If the um, 
mass is less than a centimeter, it's actually really hard to feel. Um, and some people have uh, dense breasts and that can make it challenging as well. Um, and then we go into the pelvic exam. So uh, the speculum is the duckbill thing we use. <laughs> and <laughs> this is super important. I think people confuse a speculum exam with a pap smear and they're completely yes. different things. So mm -hmm. a speculum exam, we insert the speculum into your vagina um, and we use that to visualize your cervix. We then um, take a sample of your cervical cells and that's the pap smear. So I see people that go and they're like, yes, they did the pap smear in the emergency room. An emergency room is mm -hmm. never going to do a pap smear. Right. Um, they're, right. they're not primary care, right? So so I know that, that people confuse these two things all the time when you start having sex. I know that when we were younger, they said, okay, you need to go to the guy and get a pap smear after you start having sex. Right. Um, even if you ha start having sex, you know, mid early teenage years, uh, the pap smear actually starts at 21. And uh, there's another component of that exam, uh, and that's screening for HPV. HPV or human papillomavirus is the virus that causes cervical cancer, um, and some strains also cause genital warts. Uh, so in, in women that are age 21 to 29, we recommend screening every three years and we'll look for abnormal cervical cells. If they find abnormal cervical cells, um, then they will test it for HPV. And if you have abnormal cells and HPV, then we either increase your screening frequency or recommend that you come back um, for a different procedure. And then once you're over 30, uh, and again, these are if your PAPs are normal, uh, once you're over 30, we do what's called co-testing, where we test for abnormal cervical cells and we also test for HPV. Um, it, you can have normal H, you can have normal cervical cells and HPV and that changes our screening recommendations. Really? Okay. Mm -hmm. That's something that I didn't know. And I know we had previously talked because I was frustrated, you know, saying, you know, that some people aren't getting their, their PAPs yearly and you're like, well, actually the guidelines have changed. And so maybe that's something that the listeners aren't aware of too, is as long as you're normal and you're not having symptoms, which we can get into some of those symptoms later it's okay to go that three-year screening. Absolutely. And cervical cancer, I tell all my patients, cervical cancer is typically a slow-growing disease. It's not mm -hmm. something that's going to arise overnight. If you don't get your pap in a year, um, you know, you are highly unlikely to progress to cervical cancer um, over mm -hmm. the course of a year or two. It's the people that, you know, we see in the office and they have an abnormal pap and they don't come back to us. And then 10 years have passed and then they're like, oh, now I have an issue here. Right, right. They're non-compliant. I don't know if that's what you call them, but I call them non-compliant. Yes, patients. no, that's so definitely they're, they're just avoiding it. And I think that's really important too, is um, talking about the process. So if maybe somebody listening hasn't gone through a PAP, maybe they're avoiding it. They think it's uncomfortable. Like it is so, so important. I mean, it can literally save your life. So definitely don't put that off. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so that's the pap smear portion of it. Um, mm -hmm. And after we do the pap smear, I take the speculum out uh, and then I do something called a bimanual exam. Um, so using one hand, um, I insert two fingers into the vagina. I feel your cervix um, and feel around for any vaginal abnormalities. 
And then I use my left hand and put it over your lower abdomen and I try to feel your uterus in between my two hands. Um, and then I move to one side or the other and examine the adnexa, which is fallopian tube ovary that region. If I feel pain, um, if, if I get a response from my patient that indicates it's a little bit more uncomfortable, um, obviously it's not comfortable, but if, if, right. they, if they react um, in, in a way that I think is a little bit um, more than typical, um, or if I mm -hmm. feel something, then I would recommend, you know, they go get an ultrasound. What types of things are you able to feel with that manual exam? Cysts? Yeah. Um, buildup of tissue, different things, what are you able to feel? So feeling ovaries, unless you have a, a bone thin, very healthy woman, feeling ovaries <laughs> is something that I don't do very often. If I can feel your ovaries, that's a problem. Um, and so mm -hmm. yes, we can feel we can feel lesions on, on either ovary or fallopian tube, what have you. And then some people have uterine pathology. So issues with their uterus that makes it enlarged, uh, most common being fibroids. Mm -hmm. Okay. And some women, some women, I will say this, uh, some OBGYN providers also perform a rectal exam at the time of your pelvic, pelvic exam. Mm -hmm. Um, this, I don't do it with everybody unless I have a reason to, because no one wants a rectal exam. <laughs> yeah. And, no, I think that no one's going to come in for their pap if they think that that's routine. <laughs> yes. Um, but there is value in performing it if you know the paps are abnormal um the reason being is you know you can feel um you can feel the rectovaginal septum is what we call it for lack mm -hmm. of a better terms but that tissue back there is a common place for cancer to spread common place mm -hmm. where um people can have other issues so if so somebody does that performing that they're there they have reason generally or suspicion that they feel like that that is uh, definitely something to look into yeah i had a friend um text me and was like what <laughs> what just <laughs> like, happened to me <laughs> like, like whoa i think i'm gonna change doctors because that just got weird <laughs> um, but no like like some of the oncologists i work with do them habitually but that's definitely not yeah. part of my regular exam okay that's good. <laughs> okay, so while we're talking about just odd things, during your exam, I just have a couple questions. So some of them came in that made me chuckle because I was like, oh, yeah, I definitely want to ask that too. So one of them was, should I leave my socks on? during my path <laughs> exam like okay so I like as soon as I get undressed I'm the patient that like folds my clothes up neatly oh, me too and I have a male OBGYN and I don't know why I'm like I better put my bra under my shirt like he's totally getting ready to see all the way up inside my vagina right, but I right. definitely still hide my bra so should I leave my socks on um <laughs> completely up to you honestly we don't care. Um, I have patients that go barefoot that take off their shoes and their socks, um, patients that leave their socks on and patients that leave their shoes on. Um, so it's definitely oh, that's awkward. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely dealer's <laughs> choice. If you're if you're conscious about it, um, you're ahead of the curve, if that makes sense. So I have yeah, people yeah. that come in and say, you know, I wasn't expecting a pelvic exam today. I didn't freshen up before I got here. I'm like, that's my job. And there's right, plenty right. of people that don't even think to freshen up before they come and see me. So the fact right. that you've thought about it, you're probably ahead of the curve. 
And I think that's something too, that if you're coming in with an issue, like, of, of course, I, I'm not making fun of anybody that has like an issue that's causing a smell or things like that. Like if you're conscious enough to know like that you have something going on and you're going to the OBGYN, I think maybe just assuring them like this is your everyday and it's okay if you have something going on, you're, you're there to help them. Now, if you're just poor hygiene and you really just don't care, I think that's a little bit disrespectful for your provider. Um, but but you're there to help them, especially if they have something going on. Correct. Yeah. And honestly, um, back to the socks question. Um, <laughs> so I've seen feet that gross me out more than almost any <laughs> vagina I've seen. Like, uh, like gross feet to me are worse than vaginas. I don't yeah, know why. Like you didn't go into podiatry. No. You went into OBGYN. <laughs> like, no. Yeah. Yeah. So this is something um, probably just unprofessional and there is no statistic to this, but do you think the people that leave their socks on for their exams, leave their, leave their socks on to have sex? Oh my gosh. <laughs> I've never thought of it like that. <laughs> you know, like I just, I don't know. Maybe that's a poll we need to ask. Maybe that is. Oh my I gosh. Yes. I make my, I make my partner take off his socks. He, he knows yes. the rules. <laughs> yeah. <it's> weird. <laughs> okay. So one of the questions that we had, um, and I thought this was really good was, is tracking my fertility before having kids a good idea, even if it's a few years out. And I thought that was awesome because I, I have that same question. We're a few years out mm -hmm. from considering, and I've been kind of toying that around. Like, when do I start? So I don't really, um, I guess my first question is what what do they mean by tracking their fertility? Uh, mm -hmm. So if you are having regular periods, you are ovulating, you are fertile. Um, in terms of you know we're we're in our thirties now. Um, eggs start to decline. Your egg count starts to decline as early as thirty two years old. Uh, and once you're 35 years old, you're considered um, advanced maternal age or AMA, or the new term for it is elderly multigravida, which I think, geriatric. I think, <laughs> whatever, I think whoever made it elderly was a man because no woman would call herself that at 35. No, 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 no. <laughs> but if you're, if you're not having periods regularly or um, you're worried about it, you definitely can talk to your provider about it. Um, we can do, you know, there's ultrasounds that can do what we call a follicle count, which looks for um, how many eggs you got coming. Um, and then you also have um, a, a lab, a lab called AMH or anti-mullerian hormone. And that is thought to correlate with um, your ovarian reserve is, is our phrase for it. Interesting. So how, what's in the bank? What's in your savings account? What's in your you savings know? account? Yes. <laughs> what's in that baby savings account? Okay. Yeah. Um, so if you're, so for example, I take birth control pills and I'm pretty regular, um, but say you're not, or, you know, how far out should they be tracking and getting in with their OBGYN to say, hey, we're considering this, but I'm super irregular. Let's figure this out. Um, so that is my dream. What you're describing is pre-pregnancy counseling. So I like to see mm -hmm. these people uh, six months to a year before they're thinking about having a baby, depending on how healthy or unhealthy they are. And that's not necessarily to address fertility, but to address other health issues that could impact their pregnancy. So say someone has mm -hmm. diabetes, we want to get that optimized before you get pregnant. Um, and, and so to give you and your baby the, the most ideal outcomes. 
Um, I say this is my dream because usually people show up when they're pregnant or halfway through their pregnancy, mm -hmm. what have you. Yes. So mm -hmm. they're already so far in and, you know, they, they could have maybe prevented some yep. issues that they were, they are presenting with. Um, is there anything else you want to add to that before I move on to some questions related to prenatal vitamins? Um, yes. So there are fertility kits that you can buy um, over the counter. You know, there's all this craze lately with, um, you know, the the 23andMe and all those genetic screenings. And they, they now they have one for um, for fertility. And mm -hmm. uh, it's going to look at a lot of values that we don't really look at as healthcare providers. Um, and in terms of hormones, hormones vary so much from where you are in your cycle. Um, have you ovulated? Are you on your period? Those kind of things. Uh, so just a screenshot, right. a snapshot in time isn't really helpful. Um, but the AMH really, I think some of those do have AMH in there, but it would probably okay. be cheaper to go to your provider and just request that you get um, an anti-mullerian hormone uh, drawn. Mm -hmm. That's that's really good to know. It's kind of like your weight. You know, your weight changes every mm -hmm. day. It's like, well, did you drink enough? Did you do this? So if your hormones are just slightly uh, different level, it's really either giving you false hope or, you know, false positivity, I guess. But yep. so how early should a woman start prenatal vitamins? Um, someone asked that and they said, my OB said about six months before you start trying. Yeah, um, I guess it really depends on, you know, your health. And <laughs> if you're someone who eats all your veggies and, and all, gets all your vitamins naturally, then you, you don't really have to start that far out. Um, six mm -hmm. months is, is probably a good mark. Um, but I usually tell people at minimum one month. And the reason being okay. is if you take prenatal vitamins every day, starting at least one month before your pregnancy, it can actually help some of the morning sickness symptoms. Oh, I did not yeah. know that. That's something that I'm super nervous about when the time comes. Um, is the morning sickness. So well, it, it, it doesn't just happen in the morning. It happens all yeah. day. All oh, night. I'll puke all day. <laughs> um, you know, me and my bad stomach, yeah. I will probably just be miserable for nine months straight. Um, and it's actually um, a good sign. It's, it's a sign that you have a lot of hormones that are supporting the pregnancy. So women that have oh. um, more severe nausea and vomiting symptoms, Yes, yeah, so women that have more severe morning sickness symptoms, um, actually have fewer miscarriages early in pregnancy. Wow. That is something I definitely didn't know. You know, I, I envy, well, I shouldn't say envy. I've never been pregnant and I'm not, but when people are like, oh yeah, I haven't been sick. I'm like, wow, what a dream. Like, I hope that's me. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so, so maybe not, maybe it's um, all part of the blessing. Yep. Silver lining. Okay. So one of the questions we had, I thought this was really good. Um, and not something that I thought about is why is there not more postpartum care? Or if there is, it's not really talked about, right? I agree with you. Um, we see yeah. you every week in the last part of your pregnancy, and then you have a baby and, and it's just like, bye, good luck. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Bye. Um, figure it and, out. And what I love about my job is that I get to concentrate on the mother and I focus a lot when the mom comes to her visit, especially if she has her baby with her, that the first thing I don't mm -hmm. do when I walk in the room is go to the baby, right? I always go to the mom first right. because everybody's stressed about the baby and it's my job to worry about the mom. Um, so typically if you have a vaginal delivery, we want to see you four to six weeks after you deliver, if everything was okay. 
If you have other mm-hmm. issues in your pregnancy, like high blood pressure, we want to see you uh, a week to 10 days after you delivered. Um, okay. There are conditions in pregnancy that are pregnancy related that don't show up until after you deliver, which is weird. Um, and, and I, what would those be? Like preeclampsia. Oh, yes. yes. Uh, okay. So that's a high blood pressure condition in pregnancy, but it can affect any mm-hmm. organ system. So, um, and okay. So, so if you have a vaginal delivery, we see you four to six weeks. If you have a, if you have a C-section, we want to see you, um, a, about a week to two weeks later. And that's just to do an incision check. Um, a C-section is a big surgery and I don't think that gets talked about it enough. We essentially cut women in half and pull a baby out. Uh, so <laughs> we, Yes. Um, that's a major abdominal surgery. And I see women frequently that I'll say, have you ever had any surgeries? And they'll say no. And then, then we go to their OB history and they say, I had a C-section. I'm like, that's a huge surgery. What I want women to know ultimately about postpartum care is that we are here for you. Um, postpartum depression is real. You, uh, lose a lot of hormones Mm -hmm. with delivery of the baby and the placenta and that big hormonal swing along with not sleeping, not eating, your world doesn't revolve around you anymore. You've got this new little life you're constantly worried about. Um, that takes a toll on women and postpartum depression is a thing. It is real. Um, and we are here for you. If you come and see us and talk to us about it. And, um, even if you don't bring it up, we, we give every postpartum patient that comes into our office for the first time since delivery a, a screening questionnaire mm-hmm. that asks about depression symptoms. Mm-hmm. And that's something, too, going back to the question is, to be honest, I think most women, I think it is talked about postpartum depression more nowadays, but just knowing that you're not crazy, you're not alone, right. like you're not just being sensitive, that it it is very legitimate and it's okay to say like, Hey, I never had these thoughts before, or I'm at my wits end and actually try if you can to verbalize what you're feeling to get the help that you need. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Ultimately that can affect the care of your baby. Uh, mm-hmm. in ter- and if you're raising with a, with a spouse or a partner, you know, I think it's, it's also for their well being too. They probably, whether they notice it or not, I would say most that are in tune would, they don't know how to help, you know, they're not medical professionals. So I think getting that outside resource and accepting that it's okay, just know it's okay. Absolutely. Um, In terms Mm of other, other things um, like taking care of baby, breastfeeding is a big one. Um, I feel a little bit more passionate about it than I think most people, because my mom is a lactation consultant. So lactation, oh, I didn't yeah. know that. Uh, lactation consultants are women who um, most most are nurses, and then they get this uh, subspecialty certification um, in lactation, and they can really help you if you're if you're struggling. Breastfeeding is really hard. You think it's supernatural and that you just stick your baby there and then you know the baby is fed. Right. But there's so many ins and outs and how to troubleshoot it. Mm-hmm. Um, and most hospitals have lactation consultants on staff, um, but you can look around for other resources in your area. So um, we we have a handout in our clinic that shows women who are lactation consultants that aren't affiliated with hospitals or our clinic um, that are, that are just local people that are part of La Leche League is kind of the the name of it. um, Spanish for milk. So you can look up um, to see breastfeeding area, breastfeeding specialists in your area. That's amazing. I know that's one thing that 
you know, my mom talked about 30 years ago, I just didn't want to latch. They didn't have like mm-hmm. consultants there. Maybe they did. It just wasn't really pushed. And I was just I'm a colicky adult (laughs) Um, and she was she was like you know I just feel so bad because fed is best like we can all agree that do what is best for you yourself and the baby at the time Mm -hmm. don't put so much pressure on it but my mom's like I wish back then there would have been more resources or I would have known where to look because she said I feel like you would have been a healthier baby if I could have gone that route. There's just so many benefits to breastfeeding if you can make it work. Absolutely, there is. Um, and during pregnancy, I there's this website that I tell people about. It's called Lucy's List. And Lucy's List is kind of like an Angie's List thing for, preg- for mm-hmm. pregnant women. Um, so they have really good articles. They actually uh, quote quote, um, research journals, but it's written, it's written. So, so, um, someone who's not in healthcare can understand it. Um, and it's, it's Lucy spelled L-U-C-I-E. And I think that's a good resource for information from everything to which stroller should I buy to what is preeclampsia or what happens when you get screened for diabetes in pregnancy, All, all that information is on there. Okay. So one of the questions, it wasn't even really a question, just, it was more of a statement periods literally <laughs> a period like, yes. periods and I'm like more specifically like what do you what do you want and she just said you know just anything like I just don't think women know enough about their own cycle their own period and different things like that so I'm just opening up the floor to you on anything you want to spill about okay. all right um so periods is a is a cyclical thing obviously you get them every month um and it's mm-hmm. normal for women to get them some women get them every you know, 25 days, some people are more 35 days. Um, some people are regular, some people are irregular. Uh, when I explain periods to my patients, I, I kind of divide it into two parts. I, I say it's your brain talking to your ovaries and your ovaries talking to your uterus. Uh, so your brain makes various hormones every month and your ovary responds to them by um, maturing an egg from a tiny little egg into a follicle. Um, so cysts are actually a normal part of your ovary. So your brain makes hormones that talk to your ovaries and um, causes eggs to grow every month. That egg is then released. um, And then two weeks later, if you don't get pregnant, you have a period. Uh, So your ovary itself makes hormones that talk to your uterus and your uterus then every month grows a lining. And that lining um, is called your, your endometrial lining. And that is what um, a pregnancy would implant in if you got pregnant. If not, it falls Mm -hmm. off every uh, month and that's your period. That is what we should. Yes, it is. And I, the the (laughs) metaphor I use when I talk to my patients about it is, is um, it's like mowing the grass and every month we're supposed to have, have that grass mowed to keep that lining nice and thin. Um, if your period, ah, I was going more the snake yeah. route, you, know? <laughs> you just like shed your skin off. Um, I like that one too. I see a lot of women in my office that have been to the emergency room, had an ultrasound for whatever reason, and then referred to me because they were told that they had a cyst on their ovary. Um, I want everybody to know that cysts are a normal part of your regular menstrual cycle. Um, as that egg is maturing before you ovulate, um, that can show as a follicle and that looks like a cyst. And then even after you ovulate, the rest of the follicle hangs around and is known as what we call a corpus luteum cyst. So 
both of those cysts can be completely normal and they're usually small, usually one to three centimeters. Um, they, they look kind of like a water balloon on ultrasound, um, you know, with thin walls and nothing inside. So would a woman be, and if I'm jumping ahead, let me know, but would a woman maybe that's going in for pain, is it really, maybe that's common for them to have that cyst pain, but it's not an alarming issue. Yes. I just don't want to discourage people from getting help. Yes, that is correct. Um, especially when the, when the cysts are small, that's usually not the cause of your pain. It's usually after the cyst mm -hmm. is four, four centimeters at least that we even notice them. Yeah. Definitely don't put off getting, seeking care if you're having pain Absolutely. because it could be a multitude of different things. But, um, yeah, I know some women, I have heard that as well. You know, they were told they had a cyst and it, not that it's nothing, but it was just part of their standard yes. cycle. And I'll get referrals for pelvic pain and their uh, family practitioner or whoever sent them in, you know, obviously blames the reproductive organs. And uh, that's not mm -hmm. always the case. And just because there's a cyst there doesn't mean that that cyst is the cause of your pain. So there's other causes that we would screen you for that are important as well. So one of the questions that we received while we're talking about cysts was about PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome. And they said, I have PCOS. Should I regularly get a specific monitoring done beyond my annual exam? That is a great question. Um, so PCOS or polycystic ovarian syndrome is a hormonal derangement where for whatever reason, your eggs start to mature, but you may or may not ovulate every month. Um, and this causes problems like infertility, irregular periods, et cetera. Uh, and these women usually have higher levels of androgens, the male hormone, which are completely normal, but, but in these patients, they have higher levels and that can contribute to things like hair thinning, um, acne, what have you. When someone comes into my office and presents with symptoms of PCOS, um, you know, the, I, by physical exam, I see their acne or their abnormal hair growth, um, or they, they tell me about um, they, they say they have abnormal periods, something, something we call oligomenorrhea, which means they don't have a period every month, they skip months. Um, that right there is, is pretty solid and that's enough to diagnose PCOS. Um, I do order labs to confirm uh, the diagnosis and um, usually an ultrasound as well. Once the diagnosis is, is confirmed, it is recommended that they get screened for other disorders as well. So in women with PCOS, they're actually at an increased risk for diabetes and impaired glucose tolerance, um, dyslip dyslipidemia or abnormal cholesterol, um, sleep apnea and depression and anxiety. So these women uh, should be screened for all of these things, especially at the time of diagnosis. It's recommended that you, you get screened for diabetes, um, not only with a hemoglobin A1C, but with a glucose tolerance test where they give you a nasty beverage to drink uh, and then they measure your mm -hmm. blood sugar afterwards. Um, and then fasting wow, cholesterol I did well. not. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I had no idea that there was a correlation there between yes. the two. So learn something new every day. And most women with PCOS are obese um, and, and significantly overweight, but about uh, one in five women are normal weight. So in the event that you are obese, technically your BMI is over 30, um, there's a 45% chance that you will get diabetes by the age of 40 years old.
wow. and annually, um, if you're if you're obese with PCOS, um, the annual conversion rate to type two diabetes is seventeen percent. Wow. So not something you need to get tested for every year, but I would definitely recommend if you do fit into that overweight PCOS category that you do get screened at least every three years. Mm -hmm. If they are within normal weight, I actually, I happen to know this person personally, and they're actually very mm -hmm. thin, uh, not like, uh, not unhealthy. I think they look wonderful, but they're thin. They would be what I would consider a very normal yeah. BMI. Um what is maybe the protocol for them for something like that? Should they still get tested? Uh, at the uh, When they're diagnosed with PCOS, yes, you should still get tested for diabetes okay. and you should still have your cholesterol checked. Go Women ahead. with PCOS also struggle with weight issues. Um, they gain weight easier and it's harder to lose compared to normal women. Um, but mm -hmm. if you are someone with PCOS who is trying to get pregnant, even a 5% weight loss can regulate your periods and increase the the chance that you're you'll ovulate and spontaneously conceive. Wow. Yeah. So, 5% is small, right? Wow. Yeah. Yeah, this is just stuff that I mean until you talk to an expert you just you just never know these Haven't things. Haven't thought about so. it. Yep. No, no. So what are your thoughts on long-term birth control? That was a question that was submitted. Um, I'm not really sure the depth of that question or where they want you to go with that, but just what are your thoughts with long-term birth control? Love it. If you don't want to have a baby, then use that birth control. If you're not actively preventing pregnancy, you are trying to get pregnant. Um, so, so if you're doing the pull and pray, um, <laughs> if you're doing the pull and pray and you don't want to get pregnant, I recommend you you get on some type of birth control. We have great um, hormonal and non-hormonal options now. I assume that this person about asking about long-term birth control is is talking about the hormone exposure. Yes. Yeah, I would assume so. So it, it depends on the type of birth control that you're using, obviously. Taking birth control for a long period of time does not... Um, make it harder to get pregnant later okay so there like for example okay i'd say for example like i it's recommended that i take it so that i don't yeah. ovulate because of my family yes. history so yes. i didn't know if that yep. is gonna jump um, so birth control and cancer we'll talk about that for a little bit so the risk of breast cancer when taking birth control is actually very low if you're under 35 taking breast cancer um, only one in fifty thousand women will have breast cancer that they wouldn't have otherwise had um, that's attributed to the birth control pills. And um, if you, for any age, it's about one in 8,000. So a really low risk that that's gonna contribute to breast cancer, but something to think about if you have a family history. Uh, it actually reduces the risk of ovarian cancer. So if you take um, five years total, if you, um, if you take birth control pills for five total years, you actually see a 30 to 50% reduction in ovarian cancer. And you mentioned that that had been recommended to you at some point because of your family history. So taking birth control pills for a total of five years, cumulative, doesn't have to be five years in a row, can reduce your lifetime risk of ovarian cancer by as much as 30 to 50%, which is huge, wow. especially, yes, especially if you're someone um, who has a family history of ovarian cancer. Yeah, that it was it was recommended to me. I know we had previously talked about that. And that's just something that I have been on it most of my life. And mm -hmm. there's a few, maybe a couple year window where I wasn't on any hormonal 
birth control. And um, I actually had the opposite opinion. I was thinking, you know, maybe, maybe it was better not to take it because I didn't want more hormones. And when I talked to my OB, and of course, after my mom's cancer diagnosis, they were like, you definitely, definitely need to be on it. Yes. Um, suppressing ovulation is um, the mechanism behind that. So if you if you think about your skin, right, if you go out to the sun too much, and um, you get lots of moles and sunburns, mm-hmm. your skin has to turn over quicker, that increases your risk of skin cancer. So your ovary makes the follicles and ovulates. And that's, that's the way your ovary turns over. So the more, more, um, by suppressing ovulation, you actually decrease the risk of ovarian cancer. Which Other is, things, I, I'll do anything, anything yes. to reduce it. It's nasty. O- ovarian cancer is pretty much one of the worst cancers out there. It's awful. As you unfortunately have probably yes. seen. Yes. yes. So I didn't know if that's something um, you wanted to go into cancer. We could save that. I know that's a good segue, but I think we've got a couple other things. Um, we could go into some questions that we had related to sex, and then we could go into breast health and cancer. Does okay. that work? Yeah. Okay. So one of the questions was how important is it to pee after sex? I love this question. (laughs) Uh, So women are inherently more prone to urinary tract infections. Women have shorter urethras. So uh, by peeing after sex, uh, you can actually, yeah, help reduce the chance of urinary tract infections. Okay. And then this other one, um, they are IBSD. So IBS diarrhea um, okay. for those listening. Is it common to have a bad GI stomach day the day after sex? This question cracks me up and I actually don't know the answer, but I'm going to speculate. Um, <laughs> it makes sense to me because semen has prostaglandins in it and prostaglandins kind of stimulate smooth muscle, so to speak. So mm-hmm. My guess is maybe not from sex itself, but maybe from semen. Interesting. That's just a complete, (laughs) complete guess. Yeah. Yeah. I personally have IBS. And so my thought was when I saw that was, okay, well, I know sometimes I have, I I have bad stomach days, like down to a wire. Like I know exactly what caused it. And then of course there's other days with IBS. You're like, man, I don't know. I just showed up. Um, And my thought was maybe it it had something to do with like contraction and just, Mm -hmm. you know, inflammation. And then it's just like, sorry about you the next day. So that's a good thought. I bet that's a complete guess. Yeah. Okay. Well, hey, that's, that's a good one. Um, And this one is not related to sex necessarily, but this one is how normal is nipple hair? I have to pluck mine. And it seems that I have more nowadays. Oh Same my gosh. Same. I, I see this. <laughs> I see this all the time. Um, and it's completely normal. It's nothing to worry about. Um, a few hairs now and then completely normal. If you're someone who has male pattern chest hair or um, lots of hair growing on your back or on below your belly button, um, mm-hmm. that's a little bit more concerning, but a few nipple hairs now and then completely fine. Which it's just so odd to me. I mean, I'll, op- I mean, every woman gets them. So if you're saying you don't, I think you're lying. But like when <laughs> I find one, I'm just like, are you kidding me? Like of all things that we have to go through, you're going to just throw in a coarse random sprig that I have to yep. actually pluck. Like, yep. why? Same with my chin. I mean, I guess yes. that's common. <laughs> I've got yes. my witch's uh, one little whisker. So. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's your lucky strand. Yeah. Oh, that's a good thing. I should pluck it and put it in a jar. I'm just kidding. That's weird. <laughs> that, that just got weird. That's gross. Um, <laughs> yeah. Ew. Don't, don't be influenced to pluck your chin or nipple hair and keep it in a jar, please. <laughs> um, anything related to sex that maybe you want to cover or something that you wish your parent or your parents, whoa, we don't want your parents to ask you about sex. We want, <laughs> what is something you wish that your patients would ask you? Um, more about it. I think the most common question I get is I don't want to have sex. Um, and this can be for a variety of issues. In my training, I had Mm -hmm. a physician who just had a sex clinic where people would come and talk about their sex problems and whether it's pain with sex or low sex drive, so to speak. Um, And low sex drive is a big question that I get. And honestly, I don't have a good answer for it. Um, Obviously, make sure that you and your partner have uh, a good relationship to begin with. And then just Mm -hmm. know that it's completely, men are ready to go whenever. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's completely normal normal for women to not be aroused or in the mood, so so to speak, um, until things get started. Um, and that's probably yeah, why foreplay plays a thing, right? Yeah, like, and yeah, yeah, but, and that's what I wanted to ask. Like, what is considered a normal sex drive? I feel like it's def- everyone's normal is different in my mind. Is that yes, true? Everyone's normal is different. That's completely true. Okay. Um, some women are like, you know, I could go months and months, and some women are like, no, like four times a week. Um, so it, it, there's no real normal. There's no cutoff of what is normal, what's abnormal. Um, but, but the question I ask my patients when they, when they come to me is, do you enjoy it once it starts? And if they say yes, mm-hmm. then, then my advice is to just kind of concentrate on the foreplay a little bit more. Yeah, it's not so much. I think that, and of course, I guess this is more of a marriage counseling thing, but I, I just feel like if you are having those discussions or maybe your partner's saying, you know, like, well, what's wrong with you or how come you're never interested? I highly doubt any man is going to listen to this OBGYN related podcast on this episode. But if you're listening, it varies or women just communicate that with them that it's okay and your normal is different. But if you're concerned, ask your provider. It's totally normal. Your normal is not someone else's normal for a lot of things. And there's not really a great treatment for it. There's this new pill out there called Addii. I don't know if if they advertise. I've seen that. Yes. I do not prescribe this. The reason being it has a black box warning for hypotension or low blood sugar or low blood pressure um, and loss of consciousness. And you cannot, yes, you cannot take it with alcohol. (laughs) So you take this medicine every day and you can't drink ever. And um, it only increases on average. It only increases um, the, the actual act of intercourse once per month. Wow. So not, not worth it to me for the risks versus the benefit. Um, not you have to have all. special privileges to, you have to have special privileges to um, prescribe it. And I was not interested in obtaining those. No, definitely not. Not at all. Okay. Do you want to go into breast health while we're talking about? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so let's go on to the boobs. I thought we talked about nipple hair and obviously that's super common, but um, someone asked, when should I start mammograms? I have a family history of breast cancer. So uh, when to start mammograms? 
uh, and how often to have mammograms performed varies by, um, you know, which committee, whose recommendations you follow. Um, so American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology recommends that you start no later than 50 years old and they can be performed um, one to two years. And the goal with the mammograms um, is to obviously catch breast cancer, but catch it early. And if you go frequently uh, and you follow the recommendations, it can decrease your chance of dying from breast cancer by 15 to 20%. Wow. Yes. So um, definitely start by age 50, but talk with your healthcare provider because some women, um, I offer some women to screen earlier, uh, like starting at 40 years, if they have a, a big family history of cancer. If someone has a relative with breast cancer who was diagnosed young, um, and young for breast cancer is less than 50 years old. So if you have someone who's been diagnosed at um, at 50 years old or in their 40s, then you should uh, screen, start screening 10 years before they were diagnosed. Oh, wow. So if your mom got diagnosed when she was 41 with breast cancer, we would start screening you at 31. Wow. Now, is that just with the mammogram or do you also provide ultrasound? Like what's the difference between So it those? depends. Yeah, so, so it depends. Um, when women are younger, they are more likely to have what we call dense breasts, uh, specifically women under 30. If they come to me, maybe they feel something or they're worried, then we would start with an ultrasound. Um, but once you're after 30, we would start with something called a diagnostic mammogram. So they do a, a couple more views and they actually have the radiologist, um, the physician in the room while that exam is being performed. Oh, that's interesting. So for me, and I, I guess this is kind of a twofold selfishly. So I have what I assume is fibroid cystic breasts. That's what I've been told. It's kind of hereditary. I'm guessing that's yep. hereditary. Mm -hmm. um, so for me, one, I want to talk about self-exams, but well, we'll just go that route. So for me, self-exams are hard because I feel like I can't feel anything. Um, like, would I still right. even be able to feel those really small lumps? Um, th that's hard. That's, that's um, a question I wonder about myself as well. Um, and the answer is probably mm -hmm. not. Like I said, it's really hard to feel anything that's smaller than a centimeter. And especially if your breasts are a little bit denser, a little bit more lumpy, bumpy at your baseline. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I get a lot of people that, that come in and they say, oh my gosh, I feel this. What is it? Um, and one thing to, to look out for is, does it change with your menstrual cycle? Um, and if it's been there for a couple of months and it doesn't, you know, get bigger or get smaller, um, based on your menstrual cycle, then, and it just stays the same, or maybe it's getting bigger. That's something we want to look into. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I just want people to know that breast pain with your menstrual cycle can be completely normal, but it is very rarely associated with breast cancer. Interesting. Okay. So breast, so breast pain doesn't mean you have breast right, cancer. Right, right. It's usually like the dimpling of the the skin, the tissue in that area, and but but yeah. at that point, it's already a larger mass, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So my mom does not have a history of breast cancer. I know we talked. We're going to talk about her ovarian cancer. She does not have a history of breast cancer. We don't have it in our family tree anywhere. But because I'm fibroid cystic, I'm very dense. I'm larger chested. I don't know if that's due to the fibroids. 
is it recommended that I talk to my provider about maybe trying to get, even if it's every three to five years, an ultrasound screen? Uh, not necessarily. Um, ultrasounds for screening purpose aren't um, really recommended for for people with fibrocystic breasts. Um, there is a decreased in, okay. So when you get a mammogram, you're going to get a score on, on a scale of one to six, one being completely normal. Um, and then you're also going to get a letter ranking that um, says how dense your breasts are. The reason being when you have denser breasts, it decreases the sensitivity of the mammogram. But just because you have fibrocystic breasts doesn't mean that you should get screened in, in other modalities. Um, some people will say, well, do I need an MRI or do I need an ultrasound? And the answer is no, just keep doing what you're doing um, and uh, present annually for um, present annually for your well woman exams, present for your mammograms, those kind of things. Is there any correlation? Is there any data that you're more at risk or less at risk for breast cancer if you have more dense or fibrocystic breasts? Oh, that is a good question. Fibrocystic changes in your breast or fibrocystic disease even um, is a non-proliferative breast lesion. And so it is not associated with an increased risk of breast cancer. Interesting. So let's move into ovarian cancer, if you don't mind. Absolutely. So for anybody listening, my mom has ovarian cancer. She's been fighting for five years, which is honestly... Wow amazing that she's still here five Absolutely. years later. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, which Allie can get into the, the rate survival rates are not great. It's not a great cancer. And my mom had a routine hysterectomy, felt fine, didn't have any symptoms. And when they sent it off to pathology, it was actually wow. found in the fallopian tube yep. and it was getting ready to go to the ovary. So she was a she was staged as 2B. So of course that helped her chances of survival. But what are the signs and symptoms for ovarian cancer to look out for? Um, so that's so crazy that your mom didn't have any signs or symptoms. Um, unless they and were that confused it was so with, early. Yeah, unless it was confused with menopause or something else, yeah. you know. And the mm -hmm. lack of signs and symptoms for ovarian cancer is what makes this disease awful. Um, if, uh, if there were more signs and symptoms, especially in the earlier stages, um, we would be able to diagnose it sooner. So delay in diagnosis is part of what makes this disease awful. Um, but typically we see people that come in, you know, with nonspecific symptoms that could be anything, whether it's pelvic pain, whether it's bloating, um, whether it's abnormal periods, um, all of those are, are symptoms of, can be symptoms of ovarian cancer. There's different types of ovarian cancer. Some actually secrete hormones. Um, and so those, um, when we see people with abnormal hair growth out of nowhere, yes, we think PCOS, but in the back of your head, it, in the back of my mind, I'm always thinking, okay, um, is, is there a mass somewhere like on the ovary that's secreting testosterone and that we should worry about? But those are fairly right. uncommon tumors. Um, so really just the, the pelvic pain, pelvic bloating, pressure. 
And my mom is generally really healthy. She's always been super active. She eats, yeah. I would say, pretty well. Um, she's got a small frame. You know, I don't think she was at risk due to obesity. Um, there's definitely no family history. But for me, I can't help but subconsciously have this fear, this looming cloud of when is it going to be me? And I think right. one of the things that I really wanted to talk about for anybody that's listening is just to understand that, unfortunately, there is no screening for ovarian yes. cancer. So if you want to yes, touch on that. Not. So screening, uh, screening for cancer, obviously pap smear is considered a screening for cervical cancer. A mammogram is considered a uh, screening for um, breast cancer. A colonoscopy is considered a screening for colon cancer, but we don't really have a lot for ovarian cancer. Um, you know, if somebody had a family history and wanted screening, the most I would do um, would be to um, do order a pelvic ultrasound annually and and um, order a lab, which is called cancer antigen 125 or CA 125. Um, mm -hmm. And that's a, it that's if somebody is at a very high risk, like if somebody would, would have um, the BRCA gene. What's so scary and why I constantly have this is it, it, my mom was within normal range, even when she had the cancer. It, with every occurrence or recurrence, she has always been within a normal range. It's not a marker for everybody. And there mm -hmm. are other things, and it's, it's especially not a good marker for women who are um, premenopausal because other things can increase it. Basically any intra-abdominal issues, even endometriosis can increase your CA125. So one thing you had mentioned was that your mom's um, cancer started in the fallopian tube, which is really interesting. Mm -hmm. um, that is, is kind of new science um, relative to medicine, you know, new, mm -hmm. it, new things are considered new for like 15 years. Um, but, <laughs> but so, so there's, there's this emerging emerging theory that all ovarian cancers start in the fallopian tube. Mm -hmm. um, so something I talk to my patients about when they request tubal ligations is how to do the tubal ligation. Um, you can put clips on them, you can put rings on them, or you can take out the whole fallopian tube. And there's, there's some evidence. Um, I don't think there's enough studies on this yet, but there's, there's some school of thought that you can reduce the risk of, of ovarian cancer by taking out the whole fallopian tube. Well, that's interesting that you mentioned that because I am, unless you're like Jenna, that medically doesn't make sense. I'm like 99% sure my mom had a tubal ligation years ago, years and years and years right. before her cancer and then still ended up with it. Right. So if, if you do, um, a, a tubal ligation in any form is thought to decrease the risk of it. Mm -hmm. Um, but unless you take out the whole fallopian tube, you're not going to get the most benefit. Right. Right. And she even had, um, uterine ablations done mm -hmm. for some heavy bleeding, um, and different things. And so, you know, in the back of my mind, I just wonder like, were some of those things considered symptoms for her, um, that we just didn't know at the time were actually potentially ovarian cancer. Right. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the, the BRCA, BRCA um, genetic mutation, if you don't mind. Yes. So BRCA is a gene actually that everybody has. So when you hear that someone is BRCA positive, um, that means they've 
this gene has been mutated so where it doesn't function as normal. Um, if you don't know what BRCA is, this is why um, Angelina Jolie got a mastectomy, got her ovaries out um, because she knew she was BRCA positive. So mm -hmm. the lifetime risk of ovarian cancer and breast cancer are very high in these women, um, up to like 70 to 80%, depending on which cancer and how old they are. Uh, and these women usually get cancers at a younger age. So when patients come to me and they say, oh, I, uh, my mom had breast cancer and they diagnosed it when she was 45, I'm like, oh, go on. And then I, I dig a little bit deeper for those patients. Mm -hmm. um, cancer is more common when you're old. So when they tell me, um, oh, oh, my mom was, you know, 70s when she um, right. got diagnosed with breast cancer, I'm less worried about genes in those people. Mm -hmm. uh, but patients uh, that come in with a family history and they tell me a story of, oh, yes, my mom had breast cancer at 45 and my um, like her brother had colon cancer really young. Uh, all of this are red flags that maybe this person needs to be screened um, for uh, hereditary cancer syndromes. And BRCA is not the only one. There's a, there's actually a whole family um, uh, of genes. Uh, several different genes that all cause different types of cancers. So I know we had talked offline about this, so I want to talk about it on here. My mom was tested, obviously, because she has ovarian cancer, and mm -hmm. hers came back negative. And one of the questions I had for you when we were talking was, should I be tested? She's negative. I feel like I'm in the clear. But you say, go get tested, right? Um, so not necessarily. There's actually a screen on online, a questionnaire on mm -hmm. Myriad, um, where you can go and take um, take this questionnaire, and, and it'll ask you different questions about your family and your family history, uh, and then it'll say we recommend that you get tested or we recommend mm -hmm. against it. Um, and what's great about the Myriad screening is it tests not just for BRCA, but it tests for other genes as well. So some people have a full-blown BRCA mutation uh, and other people have mutations of uncertain significance and that's how they get reported. So mm -hmm. if you go um, and you get tested for these genes and it says, um, oh, you have a mutation of undetermined significance, uh, they actually put your name and your mutation in, in their big data bank. And if they find um, something significant about that mutation and learn more about it later and uh, realize, oh, we actually do need to change um, your screening recommendations. They'll actually notify you later in life about new information regarding your mutation. That's amazing. I know when you sent me that link, I actually did that and it came back that they did recommend it. And of course, yeah. I'm willing to do any and everything. It's just like you said, I mean, ovarian cancer, unfortunately, is just such a awful cancer. All cancers are terrible. I mean, all of them. Yes. Um, and I actually have a couple friends who their mothers also have ovarian cancer and one of them unfortunately oh, has wow. passed away and it's just it's it is very it, it attacks hard and right. fast yeah mm -hmm. yeah it's actually lifetime risks for breast cancer is one in eight so you have a 12.5 percent that you might get breast cancer at some point in your life ovarian cancer is one in 70 um, so 1.43% of everyone will have wow. ovarian cancer, which is crazy. I mean, you think, you know, 70 mm -hmm. women, you know, I know, you know it's like one of them, the odds are yeah. that one of them are going to get cancer. So how old was your mom when she got diagnosed? She was around 53, 54. Oh, wow. That is young. Yeah. Super young. And her sisters who are living 
with their uterus and ovaries refuse to go get a hysterectomy and it blows my mind. Oh my gosh. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So I am all for, and I don't know if this is what you recommend or not, but I'm kind of in the mindset of, I'd really like to just have my babies when we decide the time is right. But then after that, get rid of it. Like I don't shut, shut the factory down, get it all out. Um, So we actually don't recommend, unless you come back with a BRCA gene, we actually don't recommend taking out um, anyone's ovaries until they're over 60 years old. Really? Um, It increases your risk of what we, what we say, all cause mortality. So things Mm -hmm. like osteoporosis, strokes, cardiovascular disease, um, all of those things contribute and increase when we take out somebody's ovaries prematurely. Uh, of course, the ovarian cancer can attach to different areas. Like my mom's, when she had a recurrence, it actually attached to her aorta and um, some other areas uh, outside of like her intestinal area. Mm-hmm. Is there ever, and I guess it's even rare, but is there ever a concern that you you get your ovaries removed, but the ovarian cancer cells are basically still floating in the omentum or wherever, and they actually attach to a lining of somewhere else. Oh, absolutely. Um, and when we, when we find, I mean, there's a whole type of cancer called primary, um, peritoneal cancer. Mm-hmm. And that just means it, it starts from the lining and we don't know mm-hmm. if, and, and sometimes it's hard to tell where the cancer comes from. Um, they have to do a lot of tests and, and different stains mm-hmm. the pathologists use to say, we think this is from the ovary eventually, or we think this is from um, the GI system. And sometimes we have to wait and we don't know. Right, right. Yeah. So really, don't don't shut down everything. Don't get everything removed. It's really not going to, if anything, it may set me up for potentially more issues later with osteoporosis and, and all that stroke and yeah. Oh, great. Okay. <laughs> Which is also very unfortunate. So, you know, you feel like with ovarian cancer, you really just can't win in any, there's right. no screening, there's no preventative really besides do what you can take birth control pills and, and watch for signs and symptoms that are different. Absolutely. We covered a lot of great topics today. Um, thank you for inviting me to be on your podcast. I'm just so excited. You're my first guest and I, it was just something that I feel like we're both pretty passionate about Absolutely. for different reasons. And yeah. so it's just, it's amazing. And um, maybe we'll get some more questions and I'd love to do a second one. Or if you have some ideas, just let's, let's get on the phone and chat again. Absolutely. Well, um, thank you so much for taking the time. And I know you're probably off to, you know, go deliver babies. So I get, that is where I'm going. I'm in my car now. <laughs> Well, have a good night and thank you again so much. Um, And I look forward to talking to you soon. Thank you. Thank you.